In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, we now look at the minister's call. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul writes, O Corinthians, we've spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I'll be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul continues to exhort the Corinthians in love. That's exactly what he's going to do in chapter 7 and 8 and 9. Paul has exhorted the Corinthians to examine his life and ministry and then enlarge their hearts to make room for him. And the chapter has included a picture of the battle that Paul has waged in verses 3 through 5. The weapons that he's used in verses 6 and 7. The reputation that he's gained in verses 8, 9 and 10. And now Paul reminds them of his transparency and availability and affection in verse 11. The apostle's heart is wide open. But remember, remember, there's a faction in Corinth where their hearts are narrow, perhaps even closed to the ministry of Paul, the apostle. And so Paul appeals to them like a spiritual father to his spiritual children to receive him. In many ways, the Corinthian church was carnal, immature, stunted, compromised. In what way? Well, many of the Corinthian believers didn't seem to live lives differently from their unbelieving friends or their unbelieving neighbors. In many ways, it would have been very difficult to distinguish the Corinthian from the Corinthian neighbor. The reason they'd compromised with sin. You know, there was a article that was written some time ago in Christianity Today that was based on a study done by Barna Research where there were 20 lifestyle elements that were measured by those who self-identified as believers 
and non-believers, and they measured moral and non-moral behaviors. They asked questions ranging from recycling to viewing sexually explicit movies, profanity in public, buying lottery tickets, helping the poor and the homeless, saying mean things about people when they weren't there to defend themselves. The measures included sexual gratification, drinking to the point of intoxication, or what would be considered legally drunk, illicit drug use, visiting porn sites, consulting a medium or a psychic for spiritual guidance, watching TV, attending churches, volunteering among nonprofits, pirating illegal music. And what they found was there wasn't a statistically diff- big difference between the believer and the unbeliever. Which becomes one of the worst things that you could possibly come to because it would seem that our culture and our society has become indistinguishable from the church. Quote, Americans are a unique blend of contradictions, said David Kinneman, director of the study. He goes on and he says, mosaics want to be known as activists, but their recycling pales in comparison to older adults. People think of themselves as engaging and assisting needy people, but the vast majority of Americans merely dabble in helping others, unquote. It goes on and it says, Individuals who have financial means are no more likely than others to assist the poor. Never married adults envision themselves as independent and self-sufficient, but their levels of substance abuse and sexual behavior suggest otherwise. Political liberals want to be known for their open minds, but their profanity, cutting remarks, and frequent use of payback under undermines their attitudes of acceptance, the respect, patience, self-control, and kindness of born-again Christians should astound people. But the lifestyles and relationships of born-again believers aren't that much different from others. Isn't that amazing? Does Christ and Christianity... Cause people to think differently and act differently and speak differently. And the Bible's answer seems to be no when people compromise with sin. Paul presents two arguments for separation from the world. One is an argument from principle that he's going to give in verses 13 through 16. The other is an argument from the promises of God in verses 17 and 18. And God's promise, of course, is to bless those who keep themselves pure, who shun friendship with the world in James chapter 4, verse 4, or who love not the world, it says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. There are promises associated with people who say, you know what, I am going to live my life like Christianity really matters. There's a song that says, I'm going to live like heaven is a real place. God promises to bless those who will separate themselves to himself in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 11. So what happens to the compromising Christian? Well, the Bible seems to indicate that there's a serious lack of the sense of God's presence 
there seems to be a serious lack of the sense of his love and a deeper fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And so Paul cries out. This is the the minister's call for open hearts. He says, oh, Corinthians, we've spoken openly to you. Our heart has been wide open. Paul bursts forth in an impassioned plea. Open speech was indicative of an open heart. He says, look, I've been really frank with you. I've been blunt. I've been personal. I've been transparent. Paul opens wide his mouth in the hopes of convincing the Corinthians of his genuine love and affection. But remember what some of the Corinthians thought, that they thought he was a charlatan, that he was a fake. That he was inconsistent, that he may not even be a real apostle. And so the expression, our heart is wide open or enlarged, is an idiomatic expression of the day, which meant a picture of overwhelming affection. A.W. Tozier wrote, Paul was a little man with a vast interior life. His greater heart was often wounded by the narrowness of his disciples. The sight of their shrunken souls hurt him much, unquote. Paul asks for affection. Does that shock you? That the pastor, the Bible teacher would say, look, I've been honest with you and open with you, maybe even blunt with you. He's exposed the secrets of his soul. He's pled for love and unity and goodwill. Remember, he's talked about humility and holiness and happiness. He pleads for their love and their goodwill. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Solidarity, unity didn't simply consist in holding the same things in common, even sharing the same beliefs or even the same doctrine. Now, I want you to think about this because it's important to to share the same beliefs. It's certainly important to embrace the same doctrine. Paul is calling the Corinthians not just simply to believe the same things. But to love each other. To care about each other. Not a carnal or a physical love. He's talking about a godly affection. And Paul knew that a culture of idolatry and paganism and sensual gratification would never be challenged by a church that failed to love Jesus and failed to love each other. And he knew that their carnality and their immaturity was somehow linked to the fact that they were either unwilling or unable to care about each other. C.S. Lewis said that affection is responsible for nine-tenths of whatever solid and durable happiness there is in our lives. The famous... Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards distinguished between true and false affection. He wrote, true religious affection are distinguished from false. Affections that are truly spiritual and gracious do arise from those influences and operations on the heart which are supernatural and spiritual and divine. So he's calling for a supernatural and spiritual and divine affection. 
In verse 12, he says, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Here's what he's basically saying, that this is a one way street and there's no affection reciprocity going on here. Have you ever known someone and you cared about them? but They didn't really seem to care about you. And you would smile and they would frown. And you would want to hug them and they wouldn't really want you to hug them back. There's a certain sense in which affection and transparency demands reciprocity. When he says you are not restricted by us, the word restricted means to narrow or to be contracted or to be confined. The idea seems to be this constriction of affection or genuine concern. We might think of it like a pinched or a clogged artery where there's something that builds up on the sides and it causes the blood vessel to start to collapse and not flow properly. Something has clogged the channel. The Corinthians have limited their love. They've cut off affection. And in verse 13, it says, Now in return for the same, I speak as children, as to children. You also be open. Paul, I don't think, means children in the sense of immature, although they are immature. I think what, what Paul is really talking about is he is reminding them that he is the father of their faith. He's the one who's, who shared Christ with them, who brought them the gospel, who loved them and ministered to them. And so I suspect that he means children of the faith. That is, he's their spiritual father. They've been born again. They've experienced new life because of the result of Paul's ministry. And for, in the opening uh, book of, of Corinthians, he said, you've had many teachers, but you've only had one spiritual father. And so the idea seems to be, does a spiritual father deserve some affection? Because Paul loves them like a father. And he wonders if they should return the favor as children who benefited greatly from his ministry. He writes, you also be Open. The problem? Who can make us open? Who can enlarge our heart? Who can conjure up genuine relationship and friendship and affection and deep concern? Only God can do that. Will the Corinthians allow God to open their hearts? Will they allow their affections to generate some concern? Moffat translates the passage this way. Listen, quote, O Corinthians, I'm keeping nothing back from you. My heart is wide open for you. Restraint? That lies with you, not me. A fair exchange now, as the children say, open your hearts wide to me. The, the point, real relationship seems to include affection. And you can't form deep relationships without some sort of reciprocity, 
transparency and vulnerability. And then the conversation shifts. It it began with one call, but look, the next call, the minister's call for a holy division. In verse 14, he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness How are we to understand what we're reading? Paul shifts from the subject of endearment and sentiment and affection to this issue of separation. How do you connect the dots? Paul has asked the Corinthians to enlarge their hearts and make room for spiritual daddy. Allow your affection to grow. So how can they do this? And I'm going to suggest to you that that's how we connect the dots. We ask that question. Paul says, I want you to open up your heart and I want you to open up your affection. How do you do that? How do you do that? How do you make the inside that is shrinking? How do you expand it? How do you make it larger? How do you make it grow? I'm going to suggest to you that maybe one of the answers might be, to separate themselves from all forms of sin and unrighteousness and all of the things that are creating carnality and immaturity and inconsistency inside of their heart. It may mean that there are certain kinds of relationships that are harmful. And so Paul is writing and he's saying, look, in order for us to have a healthy relationship in Christ, There's certain things that seem to be normal, but there are also certain relationships that are harmful. And so now Paul begins a series of statements, passages, if you will, on the subject of separation. Paul knew that Christians can't shuttle back and forth between the world of the believer and the world of the unbeliever. The question, do you belong to Jesus? Are you a Christian? Do you have one foot planted in the kingdom of Christ? And yet you have another foot planted in the world. I've used this before. My friend Greg Laurie talks about mugwumps. You know what a mugwump is, right? It's where your mug is on one side of the fence and your wump is on the other. Because you're right on top of the fence. You want all that the world has to offer, but you want all that Christ has to offer. And then you become ineffective in both places. My friend. (laughs) Dennis Agajanian used to say, you can't ride two horses with one butt. And it makes perfect sense. You have to either be on one horse or the other. Because the truth is, if you want to influence one world and not the other, when you remain conflicted, when you remain compromised, Your influence becomes severely compromised and then damaged and sometimes 
destroyed. And I'm not talking about a legalistic revolution where your life consists of a careful list of things that you can and you can't do. Because I know that sometimes you might come to church and you go, oh, no, this is the time when the pastor is going to tell me you can't smoke and you can't chew and you can't go with those that do. But this is not about constructing a careful list of the things that you can and you can't do. We're talking about living in the high and the holy purpose of God and friendship in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. This isn't a discussion about what things you can and can't do. This is a discussion about something way more important. And that is living your life for Jesus. Understanding the high and holy purpose that Jesus has called you to. Remember what the New Testament says, that we are in the world, but we're not of the world. We maintain a cultural, a political, a social, an economic connection, but we don't make common cause with this world's system that identifies with Satan. Remember, when it's talking about the world, it's not talking about the planet Earth. It's not talking about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees. It's not talking about Yosemite and the park system. It's not talking about Niagara Falls. It's talking about the world of human beings who stand in opposition to the things of God and the things of Christ. That's what he's asking you to stand against. We stand with Christ. And Satan stands against Christ. And there are two distinct kingdoms that are talked about in the New Testament. There's the world's system and there's Christ's system. And the two are different and opposite. One springs from the material realm. One springs from the spiritual realm. One is controlled by Satan. The other is controlled by Christ through his Holy Spirit. One caters to the flesh. The other caters to the spirit. And again, one of the main themes of the scripture is separate from unbelievers, the unfruitful works of doctrine or darkness from Belial, from idols. Now, when Paul wrote first Corinthians chapter seven, He warned the Christians and said, you shouldn't marry an unbeliever. You shouldn't marry an unsaved person. You shouldn't marry a make-believer. He also says that if you're already married to an unbeliever, you shouldn't separate from that spouse. You shouldn't divorce that spouse in the hope that... That that unbelieving spouse will hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, be influenced by your godly influences. It doesn't make sense to form partnerships with unbelievers. It doesn't make sense to form partnerships with secret orders, fraternities. It doesn't make sense to invest your life in a place where Jesus is hated and And despised. And you might think, well, you know, Jesus isn't really hated or despised. He's just sort of unwelcome. Whatever. Paul is trying to help people understand that, again, we maintain contact with the unbeliever. Not for the purpose of copying their behavior. Not for the purpose of embracing their worldview. 
but in the hopes of presenting Christ to them, in the hopes of sharing the gospel, not for the purpose of pursuing sinful pleasure. It's for the purpose of reminding them that life can be different, that love can be different, that forgiveness and wholeness and wellness is available because of the gospel. William MacDonald points out, quote, Righteousness and lawless cover the whole gamut of friendships and fellowships, the sphere of moral behavior. He writes, quote, light and darkness have to do with intelligence as to the things of God. And then in verse 15, it says, and what accord has Christ with Belial in verse 15 or what part has a believer with an unbeliever you need to understand that when he's talking about righteousness and lawlessness he's talking about every area of life when he's talking about light and darkness it has to do with those things that are revealed that are intelligent that are God honoring Christ and Belial belong to the sphere of authority. Paul is making reference to what we might think about as the ultimate authority. When he's using the illustration of Christ and Belial, we might think of that in a different way of saying, who is the master of your life? The term Belial, by the way, means without profit. Or wickedness. In a sense, Paul uses Belial as a proper name for Satan. So let's put the question a little bit differently. Can there be peace between Christ and Satan? Pretty simple question. I see you shaking your head no, and I'm glad you're shaking your head no. Because that's the right answer. Contrary to some New Agers or contrary to the emergent movement or contrary to the person who calls me on my radio program and says, is it wrong to hate the devil? You know, the Bible says don't hate anybody. So should we hate the devil? Can you tell I love to get these kinds of questions? The Bible says that we're to cling to what is good and we're to shun what is evil. By the way, has Satan made his intentions known? Yeah. Does he have any path to forgiveness and reconciliation? The answer is no. That's Paul's point. And what accord has Christ with Belial? This is called a rhetorical question, and the right answer, of course, is there is no accord. They cannot have fellowship one with another, and that becomes part of the point. There are some things that can never, must never be joined together. And so when he asks the question, or what has a believer with an unbeliever in the sense of the appeal to what controls your life, to the naturalist, it's reason. For the mystic, it's the authority of experience. For the idolater, it's the thing worshipped. And that's the point. 
When you ask and answer the question, what governs your life? Well, is it reason? Is it science? Is it whatever it happens to be? Any answer that is less than the answer of Christ is an answer that falls short. Believer and unbeliever has to do with the realm of faith. So Paul talks about the area of authority. He talks about the area of faith in the life of the believer. And in verse 16, it says, in what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. In the ancient world, the temple was the place of residence. The temple of God and idols takes in the realm of the sphere of the object of a person's worship or affection or devotion or consideration. And so Paul is plumbing the depths of faith and authority. He's asking and answering the question. What is the measure of faith and what is the measure of authority? What is the measure of of worship. Paul finds abundant proof in the assertion, we are the temple of the living God, quoting Exodus 29:45, Leviticus chapter 26 verse 12, Ezekiel chapter 37 verse 27. And so he's reminding them over and over and over again from the Old Testament that this was always going to be a part of God's plan. That you're going to be the temple of the living God. Again, William MacDonald writes, righteousness and unrighteousness can have no fellowship together. They're moral opposites. Neither can light have communion with darkness. When light enters a room, the darkness is dispelled. Both cannot exist at the same time, unquote. And that's part of the point that he's making. Two kingdoms. One has life, the other has death. One has truth and the other has lies. One kingdom is described in terms righteousness, light, Christ, believer, temple. The other is described with terms like unrighteous, darkness, belial, infidel, idols. And so... He issues the call for a sanctified separation in verses 17 and 18. Look what it says. Therefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. Here's what Paul is doing as he is making the case for the Corinthians to grow in their affection for him. It's to grow in their affection for Christ, for faith, for worship, for the things that God loves and honors. These are God's plain and simple and uncompromising message. Come out from among them and be separate. It is an uncompromising message to his people. And so what is God's instruction to his people concerning separating themselves from evil? Paul says, walk away. 
Stay out. Don't participate. God's program is to come out. And remember what we've been learning on Sunday as we began our study in the book of Romans, that separation doesn't mean segregation and it doesn't mean isolation, but it does mean insulation. Remember, Paul wrote and he said, I didn't tell you to leave the planet Earth when I said don't have don't participate with unbelievers. I didn't mean the unbeliever in the world, because that means you would have to exit the world. And that's not possible. Yeah, I'm not. Paul is saying I'm asking you to do something that is impossible. Our identity and integrity is in Jesus. We live in one sphere, but we are living by the other sphere. We are living in a world of darkness, but we are informed by light. So again. What do you. Suppose both Isaiah and Paul mean by quoting, do not touch what is unclean. I suspect that the primary meaning was the heathen world. He's talking about the world of the unbeliever, the way it thinks and acts and responds. We know that there was a time when religious Jews thought that when it when it said, do not touch what is unclean, that they thought that that meant the Gentiles. That Gentiles had some sort of spiritual cootie that if you touch them, you became immediately defiled. And remember, Peter receives a vision from a satanic sushi sheet that is drifting out of heaven and it has all kinds of stuff that you can see at the sushi bar. And he hears a voice say, rise up and eat. And, and Peter says, I'm a Jew. I've always been a Jew. I've been a Jew from a very young age. There's been no unclean thing that has ever touched my lips. And the sheet comes down again. Here's the voice again. Rise up and eat. And Peter reiterates, I'm an observant Jew and Jews don't eat that kind of stuff. And the vision said, do not call unclean what I have made clean. What is he talking about? The Gentiles. In other words, if you hold hands with an unbeliever, do you get spiritual cooties? No. It is not proximity or contact with the unbeliever that contaminates you. It's the moment that you begin to embrace their way of thinking. And let me tell you what I mean by that. When they rebel against God, when they reject God, when they when they reject the word of God and the character of God, and they begin to suggest to you that God's word isn't true or that good is evil and evil is good. That's what it's talking about. And so, again, I think it means to walk away from the world's way of doing things. It applies to all forms of evil, whether it manifests itself in the form of commercial or social or religious. And I can't in my wildest imagination take it to mean separate from other believers. Think of the context in which you are reading Paul is writing to carnal, immature, misinformed Corinthians. Are these carnal, immature, misinformed Corinthians? Yes. 
does Paul open up a bridge of affection and reconciliation so that they can walk in unity and in the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes. Again, Paul writes elsewhere, keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Paul isn't looking for a reason to separate from them. He's looking for every reason to stay together. As a matter of fact, in verse 18, when he says, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. As you might imagine, it's difficult to separate from what you've always known. Imagine you grew up in a world and I thank God if you didn't grow up in this world. Imagine if you grew up in a world of drinking and drugging and partying. Imagine where you grew up in a world of crime, of prostitution and drugs. Imagine you grew up in a world where every possible wicked thing that could be done was done. And now you're saved and you're asked to walk away from that. Is it difficult to separate from what you've always known? Especially if what you've always known is darkness and wickedness. Is it difficult to separate from what you've always known if your mom and your dad and your brothers and your sisters and your employers and the people that you work with keep telling you that you're crazy and that Christianity is a hoax and a lie and that what's the harm in smoking one marijuana joint? What's the harm in partying? What's the harm in having a little fun? What's the harm if nobody gets hurt in the process? In the ancient world, loyalties to pagan gods and loyalties to pagan institutions had lasted for generations. Think about who he's writing to and what they're thinking. Now think about the temple of Dionysus or Apollo or Athena. And you're saying, you know what? My mom and dad were priests in this temple for and their dads before them and their dads before them. And now Paul is asking you to walk away from your family and your deeply held religious traditions. Do you think it's hard or do you think it's easy to walk away? It's hard. But sometimes, in order to obey the word of God, we have to separate ourselves from the things that the people in the world love. The Lord anticipates the great difficulty that we face. And so, again, in verse 17, he says, I will receive you. Others may have forsaken you. Others may have written you off, but I will receive you. And then the Lord says in verse 18, I will be your father. You will be my sons. You will be my daughters. Well, I don't want to alienate my dad. Of course you don't. I don't want to alienate my mom. Of course you don't. I don't want to alienate my husband or my wife. Of course you don't. I don't want to alienate my children. Of course you don't. But my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my family, my friends, this world is asking me to do something that the Lord, that it grieves the Lord for me to participate in this. 
So what happens when we leave the camp of evil? Well, we're given the opportunity to unite our friendship and fellowship and then have intimate relationship with the Lord God Almighty. We are not the sons and daughters of God by just simply obeying his word, but we are sons and daughters when we're born again. The Bible says that we became children of God, not because we did something cool or because we said something cool or we managed to duck Uh, certain things, but we became sons and daughters the moment that we placed our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. We repented of our sin and we accepted him as our savior. The blessedness of this separation is nothing less than the glorious companionship of the great God himself. And so I want you to think about this because God isn't asking you to give up things To make you unhappy, what he's asking you to do is to embrace love and genuine affection that is healthy and God-honoring where you grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. And the ultimate glorious companionship is God is pleased by what you do. So what happens if we find ourselves in a church? Where God isn't honored, where Christ is ignored, where the Holy Spirit is laughed at. What are we to do when a church adopts the positions of the culture and calls good evil and evil good? What are we to do when a church simply sees itself as an extension of a political party or a social club? What do we do when a church sees that its primary reason for existence is just that, just to exist? What do we do with a church that embraces traditions that in the end wind up dishonoring God, dishonoring Christ, or denying the gospel? What are we to do when a church finds the Bible in error? Worse. I I know you're probably thinking, what could be worse than pretending that the Bible isn't true? I'll tell you what's worse. It's to pretend that the Bible is irrelevant. That what it says, what it invites, what it promises doesn't really matter. And so the minister calls for cleansing and holiness. Look what it says in verse one. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In a real sense, this verse, again, belongs with chapter six. And that's the reason why I'm including it, because Paul is listing two motives for separation from from the world. Love for God. Notice what it says. Therefore, having these promises, beloved agapidos, it means dearly beloved. And he says, "Okay, these are your motives for separation, because you are loved by God. Isn't that interesting? Paul doesn't give the motive as you should be afraid that God is going to ruin your life unless you obey him. No. He says, let's begin at the beginning. There's two motives. Because you are loved by God and the fear of God. 
Again, what does that mean? Does it mean you're afraid that God's going to club you to death? That he's in heaven going, I knew it. I knew that about you. You are in big trouble. You are in deep kimchi. That's Korean cabbage, by the way. Fermented Korean cabbage. But it just sounds so almost like a cuss word. In a real sense, not only does he lift the two motives, you're loved and fear God. Now he lists two responsibilities. We cleanse ourselves. That's the negative and perfect holiness. That's the positive. We're encouraged to confess our sins, allow God to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we also cleanse ourselves in what way? By putting off those things that are dishonoring and displeasing to the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 1 verse 16 it says, wash yourselves. Make yourself clean. Perfecting holiness. By the way, what does that mean? Perfecting holiness. Jerry Bridges writes, to be holy is to be morally blameless. It is to be separated from sin and therefore consecrated to God. The word signifies separation to God and the conduct befitting those who are so separated. I like that. Holy is a moral condition. It's a separation from sin, but then a consecration to God. And then Paul lists two kinds of sin. The filthiness of the flesh. Those are things that are on the outside. And then he talks about filthiness of the spirit. Those are the things on the inside. And so here's what he's basically saying. There's sins that we do with our body, but then there's sins that we commit with our imagination and with our mind. Again, the useful illustration is the story of the prodigal who was guilty of the sins of the flesh. He ran away from home. And then his older brother, who was angry and upset, one son was guilty of sins on the outside and the other son was guilty of sins on the inside. The problem? The sins on the outside are really easy to see. And the sins on the inside are really easy to cover. So Paul promises reward for the Christian who walks with Christ and in Christ. We have intimate fellowship with God and Christ. We experience a personal blessing. Again, Jerry Bridges writes, quote, the pursuit of holiness is a joint venture between God and the Christian. No one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his life. But just as surely no one will attain it without effort on his own part. God separates you. But then he asks you to make a decision. And of course, the decision is to say yes to him. And to say no to Satan. Martin Lloyd-Jones expressed it this way. Holiness is not something we are called upon to do in order that we may become something. It's something we are to do because of what we already are. You are. Saints. You are. Called. 
You are separated. D.L. Moody said a holy life will produce the deepest impression. D.L. Moody said lighthouses blow no horns. They only shine. It's not the noise that you make. It's the light that you produce. And we can't afford to be bound in friendships and partnerships where they ask you to limit your spiritual freedom, where they ask you, can't you just forget about God this time? Can't you just ignore or close your Bible? Why don't you just pretend like the Bible doesn't really say that? You know, some people are in bondage to a lifestyle that we can't condone or to a philosophy that hates Christ or to values that stand in opposition to what is pure and decent and wholesome. And we're left with the ultimate question of the Old Testament. How can the two walk? Unless the two are agreed. And so the Bible invites you to walk together. Not just in a mutual belief, but in a mutual affection that surprises, encourages, and even calls the unbeliever to look at you and say, I want that kind of peace and I want that kind of joy and I want that kind of affection and I want that kind of confidence that I'm going to heaven. Next week, verse 2 of chapter 7. And only verse 2. No, I'll try to do more than that. I'll try to do more than that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the call. That, Lord, we're not to just simply separate ourselves from sin, but that we're to attach ourselves to you. Lord, we know that in our own strength and according to our own resources, we'll never be able to do such a thing. And so again, like Paul, Lord, we pray so far as it's within our power. That we being one body joined and fitted together, that we would encourage the mutual ministry, not just simply of right belief and clearly not just simply external behavior, but of a deep affection that's rooted and grounded in a reciprocity. Of transparency, authenticity, real affection between real people who care about a real Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.